Is this on? There we go. All right. Um, thank you for um, uh, for being here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. I do hope that you, I mean, in both services, the music has been just spectacular. And and when I say that, I don't necessarily, I don't mean that from a human perspective. I mean, they were good and all, but at the end of the day, the, 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 the priority of worship on a Sunday morning is to sing about Jesus, right? Amen. So the gospel has already been, if we, if we went now and went home, the gospel's already been proclaimed. And so we don't sing um, songs like you do when you go to a concert. We're actually saying things back to God. We're praying back to God the truth that's already in the word. And so um, I'm just really glad to, to be here and to have been set up so well. I do want to thank Pastor Revis, Jonathan. I've, uh, I've actually preached uh, for Jay when he was here, the, the founding pastor, and then I preached for John Green when he was here. And uh, this is my first time to be able to be on a Sunday morning to preach here with Jonathan. But I have enjoyed being with your staff. And we've spent several days together or afternoons together just thinking strategically about what it means for you to be who you are here in this city in this particular moment. Um, I don't know. I haven't heard the song that Jonathan wrote yet or is singing, but I do know there is a phrase in it that he told me something about lace on your Levi's. So I cannot wait to hear what the song actually was. Um, It's frightening and funny all at the same time. So anyway, here we um, how many of you are old enough to remember Hurricane Katrina as it directly hit New Orleans? Okay, m- most of you. I asked that question in the first service, and somebody said, what about Dora? That's the one that hit in 1963. But anyway, um, it was the deadliest and most costly hurricane that has ever hit um, America, still, even even today. And it, it happened in, in 2005. It actually kind of swirled out in the Gulf uh, as a Cat 5, but it actually came ashore as a Category 3. And here's, here was the problem with that. Um, the levees b- were breached, and the pumps didn't work. M- some of New Orleans is not, is not built above sea level. Some of it is below sea level. So there was an infrastructure put in place to be able to help uh, when flooding came. When Ida hit New Orleans on the 16th anniversary of Katrina just a few weeks ago, um, it was not as catastrophic. It was bad, but it wasn't as catastrophic as Katrina. And according to the governor, Governor Edwards of Louisiana, the silver lining in the Ida experience was that not a single levee was breached and all the pumps worked. See, there's an interesting thing. Katrina did not cause all the problems that New Orleans experienced, but it did reveal several preventable, severe weaknesses the city had that made it extremely vulnerable to the storm that happened. So it revealed weakness. It didn't cause all the damage. COVID is our spiritual Katrina. It has been a revealer of, the pers- of whatever perspective we have about the church. And when I say we, that's an editorial we. I, I mean believers and government and America and whoever else. And, and one of the things that has become clear is that there's been a shift in American culture. And that is we see church not as an essential service in our discipleship process, but as an option that spiritually enriches our lives. And that doesn't bode well for the future of the church. When a, there, 
whenever we don't understand that, and I'm not talking about people who can't come because of vulnerabilities. I'm not talking about masks or no masks. What I'm talking about is in the culture generally is church isn't seen as an essential service. And, and, and what's important about that is when Christianity is thought of as helpful but not essential, we've missed the whole point of what the Scripture is saying. See, this isn't what Jesus. This isn't what God said two thousand years ago. This is what God is saying today. And so, one of the things that I want us to to think through is what does it mean to not think of Christianity as helpful, but as true. And so, one of the things that we will we, we need to remember is the Scripture is revealed truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a, a preacher from another era, said this, Christianity is not, about a, is, is not a good idea on how to live. It's not a program for living. It's more than that. It's an announcement of what God has already done. Dallas Willard, a, a, a theologian who recently died, uh, said this, our beliefs are the rails upon which our life runs. I'm 58 years old. I'm, uh, ARP is after me, a double, uh, AARP. I haven't given in yet. I haven't signed up. Um, but one of the things I'm noticing about getting older is it's harder to hide who you are the older you get. The older you get, the more you, are who, the more you become who you've really been deep down inside. To me, that's what our beliefs, that's what Dallas Willard's quote means. Our beliefs are the rails upon which our life runs because your beliefs are leading somewhere. Uh, theologians have said for years in the Westminster Catechism that the purpose of God in the world, the, the purpose of God in the world, is to, is for people from all the nations to exalt Him and enjoy Him. And so, if you and I are the people of God, then our primary purpose for living is to exalt and enjoy God. And then, here's the kicker: God's purpose then is to mobilize those of us who are already enjoying and exalting God in the mission of reaching the people who do not yet exalt and know God. And I think the text that I'm about to read to you actually makes this point that I'm about to make. If you're not seeking to live as one who enjoys God and exalts him among all the nations, then you're missing a very important purpose for living. And so as we jump into Ephesians chapter 2, uh, go ahead and swipe your Bible to that, that text or open a Bible if you have a paper Bible. Um, and, um, and I just want to remind us about this passage of Scripture. Ephesians is a prison epistle. Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. It's written to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, um, which was the commercial center of uh, Asia, Asia Minor at the time, which basically means it was a New York or it was a Dallas, or it was a Charlotte. It was a, it was a place where culture was created. I, I think that's important for us to know in these moments that the, the Scripture is not afraid of culture. The, the, the Scripture overcomes culture, but the Scripture has to be lived in order for the Scripture to overcome culture. And so, um, so here's, the, here's the good news and kind of the summary of the, the sermon, then we'll jump into the text, is that what this text is going to tell us is that we are made alive in Christ. The Apostle Paul uses that term in Christ 30 times in the book of Ephesus, 200 times in all of his writings. And the important thing about that is that, is that Christ is con- I mean, Paul is connecting two things. Being alive in Christ 
is to be connected and activated in his mission. So in, in other words, Jesus didn't save us to attend church. Attending church is a good thing. And, and I just made the case that, that it's an essential service and it's, it's an essential part of our discipleship process. As a matter of fact, if you were to say, well, I, um, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, then what you're actually saying is you don't like his bride. And, and so I would say to you, please don't tell me you don't like my bride. I, I mean, you're right. It's, it's just not, it's, it's inappropriate. And it's super inappropriate when God has said it. It's not so, I mean, don't be afraid of me. I'm nothing. But, but if God says that the church is his bride, we need to love his bride. And, and so as we, as we move into this, um, we need to live as though um, we're, we, we still see the value in the church. We, I'm convinced, and again, this wouldn't happen at Schindler, but it does happen at other churches in Jacksonville. Some of us have been doing church so long, we've almost gotten over it. Kind of like the couple that's still married, at least legally, uh, but they don't have the joy that they once had in the relationship. They've kind of lost, the, lost touch with their friendship and, and, and the love and the hope that brought them together. I have to tell you, Tina and I have been married um, 37 years this October. Uh, she's sitting here on the front row, so you can check that out. We, we met each other... Uh, <laughs> We met each other five years before that, which means we've known each other 42 years and I'm only 30. Uh, But anyway, uh, or as I counted last week, it was 14,965 days. And the relationship is fresh because we work at it and because she is super forgiving. And and so um, part of what I want us to do today as we look at these 10 verses in scripture is to remember that um, God is speaking to us today. So if he's speaking, we need to hear him. If we hear him, there, would be a re- there will be a response, whether it's publicly or in your heart, wh- whatever, there will be a response. And that part of what we are hearing today is what does it mean to be the church in post-COVID America? Because it's going to be different than pre-COVID America. And we don't even know all the differences yet. But if you can't look around in the culture and see just how, how the speed of... Um, depravity, the speed of rebellion is accelerating, then, um, then just watch a different station. I mean, but, but it's happening. So let me pray, and here we go. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be the mouthpiece uh, for this text. God, you're the teacher. Your Holy Spirit's the teacher. Your text is the subject. Please uh, help me to be able to clearly um, uh, explain what you have put on my heart, and God, you're free to change anything as we move forward. But God, I I pray for your complete control of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. (laughs) This is my first rodeo. Okay, here we go. Um, The first thing that we need to, um, that we need to understand, and this will be on the screen. The first thing that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 does is it talks to us about the problem. I said earlier that... um, that Christianity is a revealed religion. The way that we know that we're lost and separated from God is because he told us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, also, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So as we look at that, there's a couple of things that is important for us to pull out of that, of that text. Number one is this. Um, you were dead. Paul's writing to believers. He's showing them their, their, their previous state. You know, one of the things that can happen if you're like me and you were saved at nine years old, you can forget that you were lost. You can forget that, that you need Jesus as much today to live a faithful life as you did before you came to him. So what does it mean that when he says you were dead? It, it literally means you were without spiritual life. When, when you're dead uh, apart from Christ, it means that if, if you were to die, that, that heaven would not be your home. Without, when we're dead in Christ, it means that we're without the capacity or the desire for God to know God, to follow God, to, to even please him. We don't have that ability. And then Paul is, is helpful to us. He goes on to tell us why that is. And he says, by nature, there was two things. You were, we were children of wrath. We were, in other words, we were born into a broken world. And what we find out is we're part of the rebellion. We're part of a world that has rebelled against God. And, and even if we didn't intentionally join the army, we are part of the rebellious army. And, and he says, there's two things we do. He, he says, we, there's transgressions and sins. Theologically, what that means, if you were to, to kind of hone in on it, and we need to do that because he points it out. Transgressions, when he says transgressions, those are things that, that you may do that you don't know are wrong. But remember that old commercial ignorance of the law is no excuse? I, I mean, even if you don't know that, that everything in the scripture, when you break the law, you still break it. My son's a JSO officer, and, and I would say that, that I could probably break a law that I don't even know is a law. Uh, but I'm still guilty of that, of breaking that particular law. That's what transgressions are. I mean, think about this. If, if this wasn't true, it would be really bad for us to go to a foreign country and tell them about Jesus. Because if you're not guilty because you don't know the law, the worst thing you could do is tell somebody about the law. And so transgressions, we're guilty even when we don't know we've done wrong. Sins, on the other hand, this is more what I do. This is when I, this is choice. This is when I know it's wrong and I do it anyway. So, so Paul is saying the thing that makes us dead, the things that breaks, that broke our relationship with God is transgression and sins. And, and why do we do that? Paul goes on to tell us that there are three things that are driving this soul condition that we have that he calls children of wrath. The first is the world. That's a problem that's outside of us. The world is the world system. It's the way we think about marriage and identity and gender and all of those kinds of things, right? And, and so if, if we aren't believers, then what are we going to do? We're just going to flow with culture. And then there's the devil that he says that works in the sons of disobedience. And, and so we actually have a real enemy. Like we have a real savior that, that here's the good news. The savior is omnipotent, all-knowing, you know, all those things. Satan is not, but he's still real. He's still a real enemy of our soul. But the good news is, is that, and we sang about it earlier, but, but, but the idea is that even when Satan is full on full court press in your life, the scripture says that God always makes a way of escape. In, in first Corinthians chapter 10 verses 13 through 14, which I, for, I failed to give to the guys, but, but, he, but write it down and look it up. It's no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee adultery. So here's what it literally means. I mean, I have a fifth-grade boy in mind. Here's what it means. When temptation comes, if I would look around, there's an exit door. I mean, there's a way out of the temptation. That's, I mean, that is what it says, right? 
And so at the end of the day, either God is telling me the truth everywhere or nowhere, and so no temptation has taken me. So, again, just to reiterate and to land the plane on this first point, in this condition, we really begin to be affected by the world's thinking about marriage and beauty and parenting. When human life begins, gender, identity, and all those things that are ultimately important. And ultimately, what ends up happening, it's like, have you ever been to a a water park that has a lazy river? Right? Raise your hand if you've done that. Okay, it's fun, right? On a sunny day, you'll sit in the inner tube, and and it's really cool because you get to go around. And then if you want to get out, you can get out, or you just do it again. Except the lazy river that we're in is the lazy river of sin. See, without Christ, we're in the lazy river of sin, enjoying ourselves on the path to destruction, and we don't even know it. Hey, parents, isn't it true that there are some things that are fun to do that are not good for you? That's what the Scripture is telling us. Hey, guys, there are some things that, that might seem right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. You see, from Paul's perspective, our condition is like being in the lazy river of sin headed towards God's judgment. So let me ask you this. Don't answer out loud. If you're a follower of Jesus, what lazy river of sin did God rescue you from? Because he did. Because something happened in your heart where you realized, oh, this thing that I'm currently involved in, it's not right. It's not the will of God. It is destroying me. It's destroying my marriage. It's destroying whatever. And God rescued you from that. The second point I want to make is is the solution is proclaimed. Not only is our problem made clear, but but the solution is proclaimed. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, he goes on to say, but God, and by the way, if you have the NIV or or um, one of the newer translations, it won't say but God together. The the actual Greek is those two words are together. And so, so, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so why is that important? Well, the reason that is it's important is because God is the God of the turnaround. When you go to a, a, a suspense movie or a dramatic movie, and the bad guy is about to get the good guy or the good guy is about to catch the bad guy, what does the music do? It changes, right? The music changes. I would say that if there was a soundtrack to the scripture, anytime you see a but God, there is an inflection in the spiritual music that's saying, hey, watch this. Because what we're seeing is that that God is the God of the turnaround and he has a unique set of skills. How many of you would admit to watching the movie Taken? If you're a dad in the room with a daughter, I mean, you're thinking you could do this. You know, you, could, you would rescue your daughter just like uh, Liam Eason. And, and here's the thing. Remember that scene where he says, hey, I'm, he's talking to the bad guy and his daughter's gone. I have a special set of skills and I'm going to use them and blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. Your Savior has a special set of skills. In Taken, of course, the hero didn't die. But the special set of skills that your Redeemer has is that he comes and gets in the lazy river of sin 
and he defeats the lazy river of sin. He gives his life. And then guess what? Death cannot hold him. You just sang about it. And so what happens is your redeemer with this very special set of skills actually saves you. That's why we use the word. We were redeemed. He gets into into our particular lazy river and he rescues us. And he does two things immediately. He changes your heart. He gives you a new destination. That's called salvation. Here's the thing. When that happens, you're not finished, but you're secure. You're in the family. You're on Jesus's team, but you haven't been discipled yet, so you're not fully capable of living out what your future is. We have a two and a half year old granddaughter who's on a a soccer team. I mean, no, she's in like on a little thing for skill development and she got her new shirt. And I think that's like the best part, you know, for her, she got the shirt. Um, But it's, I call it flock ball. You know, all the kids just flock to whoever the ball is. And anyway, it's awesome. And until she's a D1 soccer player, this is good. Um, Of course, that's a grandfather. But anyway, here's, here's my point. Addie, because she's a healthy young lady, is on a soccer team, but she doesn't fully know how to play soccer yet. So when we come to Christ, we get the shirt. We're on the team. And then however long he lets you live, you're learning skills. You're playing the game. That's what discipleship is. Listen, the American church has made discipleship about what you know. The Bible says it's about what you show through your life. I'm not saying you don't know stuff, but we're going to learn in just a minute. It's about being able to be sent to what God wants us to do. Here's one of the frustrations that I think Jesus must have with our church. We tend to think of eternal life, this thing that we're in, this in Christ, we tend to think of eternity starting when we die. But no, that's not true. Eternity starts, well, first of all, the minute I'm born, I'm going to live forever somewhere. So eternity starts the minute that I'm conceived. Eternal life. But what happens is, is my destination has changed when I am put in Christ. And that in Christ language is super important because Paul goes on to say that nothing can take you out of Christ once you are in Christ. My, my obedience didn't get me in, so my disobedience doesn't kick me out. And so that's what grace is, right? Grace is giving, it's God giving us what we don't deserve. I think of it this way. My, my kids are 30 and 33 now, but go back with me to let's say when they were 12 and 15, and let's pretend that the Bumgarners are going to Disney for the day. And so we pull up in the parking lot, we're taking the tram and we get up there. And let's say my son, Caleb, sees this kid over here that he thinks he knows that's not in line. He's just kind of wandering around the aimlessly in the Disney parking lot. And let's call him Billy. So Caleb walks over and he sees, he says, Billy. And yeah. Oh, Caleb. Yeah. And what are you doing down here? He he says, uh, well, I'm homeless. My dad lost his job. My parents divorced and I'm just out on my own trying to make ends meet. And Caleb says, well, come to Disney. Come on, let's come to Disney with us. And he goes, are you crazy? I got to spend my money on something other than Disney. My dad will take care of it. So he come, we come over and Caleb says to me, he says, dad, this is Billy. Um, 
we played baseball together in, in Little League. And um, it, Can he come to Disney with us? What am I going to do? For a homeless friend of my son, I'm going to do Disney and more. But not because of Billy alone. I didn't even see Billy. But my son did. Because of the relationship that Billy has with Caleb, my life is open to Billy. That's the gospel. It's that that Jesus loved us, came for us, got in my particular lazy river of sin, rescued me and said, hey, dad, Bob is guilty, but I paid the price. And so because we are in Christ, we've not only been given a future, but we've been given a pulsating spiritual life now. Think of the fruit of the spirit listed in Galatians chapter five. This isn't something that you'll do sometime. This is the power you have now. Listen to what it says. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So becoming a Christian doesn't just get you to attend church. You're a totally different person who, by the way, wants to go to church, wants to be with God's people. Number three, the path forward is clarified. The path forward is clarified. Um, Listen to the last three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, a couple of things. As we think about this, um, God doesn't want you to get saved and then invite you to walk with him. Invite, and then you invite him to walk with you. I think sometimes we get saved and then we say, God, come along with me. No, when you're saved, God is inviting you to walk with him. God's not joining team Bob. I'm joining team God. That's the same as with Matthew chapter four, verses 18 through 22, where Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He, Jesus didn't say, let me hang out with you and let's see what happens. Follow me and I will involve you in what the kingdom is going to become. And so Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's about receiving and believing. So my bride's right here on the front row. Um, I can tell you firmly today, if there was not a young lady named Rajonda Dewey, we would not be married. So Rajonda comes to me in a weight training class. I played football in high school. And Tina had told her, hey, I think I like Bob Bumgarner. Do you know him? And we, Rajonda and I went to church together. And so Rajonda came to me and said, hey, if you ask Tina out, she'll say yes. Here's the thing. I was never in the cool kid group. I mean, this is my ticket. This is my, I mean, I'm not brave. I, I just knew that I couldn't fail because she offered to like me. This is not hard. I mean, this is super not hard. She offered to like me. And, and so all I had to do, listen, all I had to do was believe it, right? I mean, before I asked her, I had to believe that the offer was real. This is so easy. Jesus likes you. 
the scripture says before, while you were still sinner, Christ died for you. That's a like sign. I mean, that's like, hey, I'm for you, right? So all you have to do is believe that he's telling you the truth and then receive his gift. Receive who he is. In the scripture, I want you to notice this. Notice the order in in the scripture. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But before that, it talked about we're saved by grace through faith. Notice the order. He talks about coming to Christ in faith before he talks about doing good works. So in other words, here's the thing. We are made alive and then activated to do good works. We don't do good works in order to be made alive. So, God didn't, um, God did not make us alive just to give us a home in eternity. God made us alive to bring glory to himself. In the scripture, in the second point, it talked about the future glory. So in other words, when we're all in heaven together, it's not going to be about us. It's going to be about generation after generation after generation of people who followed Jesus saying thank you, praising him, bringing him glory. And what does God do? It says that he changes us. We're his workmanship. It's the word poema. It's the, it's the word for poetry. We get our word poetry from that. It actually means masterpiece. And so what happens is God uniquely creates you to do what he uniquely is calling you to do. And the word create there where it says that, that we're made into the, the um, that we're the workmanship of God, the word after poema, the word create, it is a word only used of God. It's a kind of creation that only God can do. So for instance, I was in Derby this week where my parents live and it was my mom's 77th birthday. And I got to go around to see all the things I used to do in high school and all those kind of things and look through some pictures in my mom's basement. And, and here's the thing. You know, I, I have a lot to be grateful for. There were a lot of people who poured into my life, teachers, coaches, bosses. But you know what? If there's anything good in me, it is because of God. You see, we get to, we get to pour in and invest in other people as an action that God does through them for me, for us. Does that make sense? See, that's why you can get up any day and it can, even if, even if it's not a day that you would enjoy going through, it can be a purposeful day because of who God made you to be. I, I used this illustration when I did the leadership talk in here on that Saturday. So if you were here, I apologize, but I want to use it again because it's, it's exactly what this is trying to get at. Jesus in, in Matthew chapter five, when he was talking about salt and light, he talked about how that um, we're salt and, and we're light and don't hide your light and your salt. And he says, when you do your good works, do them in front of men and glorify your father who is in heaven. Um, that, that word there, good works, is kind of in the same family as what we're talking about here. And it's a word that means winsomeness. Now see if this doesn't resonate with you. Before COVID, Tina and I used to go to movies. We'll start again someday, but we just haven't gone back recently. Um, and here's what we would always do. We'd go to a dinner out and we would, you know, we'd go out to eat and we'd say to each other on the way to the movie, hey, let's don't get any popcorn. And let's don't get, yeah, you're right. You already know where I'm going. That, um, let's not get any Coke or whatever. And we pinky promise. And then we would get out of the car. 
we'd walk to the door and we'd open it. And what happens? The popcorn smell wafts over you. And like the zombie apocalypse, you start walking over to the, the counter. And here's the thing. You don't pull out cash. It's too much cash. I mean, you pull out a credit card to do it, and it's more than you paid to get in. And then you go in and watch the movie, and you say on the way home, let's not do that again. But here's the thing. Um, That's the idea that God says when we work, when we obey him, when we walk in the prepared way that he's laid out for us, the actions that we take in his name, as far as heaven is concerned, it's like the sound, it's the smell of popcorn. It's winsome. God, I, I, I don't know if he looks over the rail of heaven, but, I, but I, this is what I picture. Hey, see what Tina's doing? See that? That's the path I laid out for her. I am so proud. I'm pleased with that. See what those people at Schindler are doing? See how no other church is doing that thing? But, but I've told them to do that. I am so heavenly proud of what they're doing. See, God doesn't give us busy work or work to keep us busy. He gives us work to build the kingdom, to extend the kingdom. And so I close with this. How do you take a next step after a sermon like this? Like what could a possible next step be? I think there are three at least. First is dwell on scripture every day. Now, notice I didn't say read the Bible. However it is that you can dwell on Scripture. Some, of you, some people say, I don't read well. Well, if you've ever had that as an excuse, you can watch the Bible, you can listen to the Bible. I mean, you can do, there's any way, consume the Scripture. Con- and do it, in a partic- do it in a way, do a plan. And then engage it, dwell, like have a conversation with the Word. Read the Bible, let it read you, and then talk about it with God. But engage the Scripture. The second thing is pray for your family or pray with your family every day. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I'm, and I'm still not there yet, confessionally, um, perf- perfectly. But Tina and I, when we were raising our kids at home, we hardly ever missed prayer time. I mean, it was, it was just a thing. We just did it every night. And when you talk to our kids, they remember that. That's a big deal to them. Can I tell you the weird thing? Now that we're empty nesters, it's harder to pray. It, it's just that you get lazy. The discipline of it is not because your days are so different. When you have kids, everything's structured, right? So pray with your family. Pray with your spouse. Next, participate in church every week. Notice I didn't say attend church. Participate. So if you cannot be here because of physical reasons or you know whatever, then participate in church however you can do that. If you are here, then participate... Uh, in other words, engage. Don't just come and listen and then talk about if the message was great. I mean, if it was great, that's cool. Uh, but but that's, not, that's not really participation. This moment is really to spur you on to love and good works the other 167 hours this week. And, and I'm convinced of this. When a church is alive and vibrant, the best work happens after Sunday. The best work happens between Sundays. And guess what? God knows, whoa, God knows everything. God knows all the stuff. (laughs) God knows all the stuff, even if nobody else ever hears what you did. I close with, by reading Psalm 
chapter 1. I think if you want a picture of what the, how the Bible describes what Psalm, I'm sorry, what Ephesians 1 through 10 looks like in a person, I think Psalm chapter 1 verse, uh, verses 1 through 6 covers it. Here we go. Blessed is the man or the woman or the child or the teenager who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight or her delight or their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, we have been saved. We are in Christ. We have been sent to a particular mission field. And so my encouragement to you is lean into that. Run at it with all that you have. And the scripture says you will prosper. And the scripture also says that you'll feel the Father's pleasure.